Well, welcome to another edition of the Bottom Line Show. Roger Marsh here. It's Everyone Wednesday. Super excited because everyone who calls in is going to win something. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. And I'm grateful that we have so many resources to give away. Fascinating new book will be the crux of what we're giving away today. But also we've got a variety of different devotionals. Uh, David Jeremiah, Charles Stanley, uh, Dr. Jeremy McGarity of Skyline Church and others who have contributed to our prize pile, as it were. And so when you call 800-227-5278 today, you're going to win something. I want to start things out, though, on a bit of a somber note, uh, simply because we haven't heard a lot about this in the media recently. Doesn't mean it isn't happening. Using double negatives all over the place here. But um, the the assault on Christians in Nigeria has only gotten worse. And the idea that the UN is obsessed with, you know, things like, hey, the next time there's a global pandemic, not that we know when the next global pandemic is coming, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But, uh, you know, let's let's make sure that uh, once it does show up, that uh, the UN has global power to basically enforce whatever we want to enforce with regard to um, whatever we want. Uh, yeah, and the U.S. is good with this. As long as Joe Biden is, office, is in office, he's good with it. As long as a guy like Donald Trump is in office, they will not be good with that. Uh, but I should also point out, too, little Super Tuesday on Wednesday, but if Nikki Haley gets the presidential nominee from the GOP side, Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence has tossed his hat in the ring, none of those people would be okay with the UN taking over in a uh, global health crisis and saying our rule as far as lockdowns and mandatory uh, mask mandates and vaccination, things like that, none of those GOP uh, candidates would ever support that, as far as I know, from what I've read. And probably even a couple, if Tulsi Gabbard ever gets on the the Democrat ticket, I don't think she'd support it either. But... It's just somewhat ironic that the COVID, I'm not suggesting that COVID was not a global pandemic in the tragic sense, but there were so many people who died with COVID as opposed to died from COVID. To try to compare it to, say, the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918 really pales in comparison because when people got the Spanish flu, they died of the Spanish flu. And the vast majority, the CDC never backed away from this number. It's the reason why I keep sharing it. 94% of the people who died with COVID in their system, died having COVID in their system along with another comorbidity. And and I'll tell you, those comorbidity things, it's real for some people and not for others. Case in point, it was just over a year ago that I contracted uh, pneumonia. And really, it was the worst, probably the worst throat and nose infection I've had in 30 years. And kind of came out of nowhere. We're not quite sure where it hit the household. Lisa got it first, then I got it. And I was feeling kind of run down. Ironically, that Monday before I went to the hospital, um, I was taking care of everybody else. We had our daughter Taylor here, her daughter Zephora. Taylor was pregnant at the time, now Nazareth is here. Um, Lisa was run down. Everybody was run down. And I remember having a, a voiceover session that morning. And I called in and said, hey, I can't make it. I got to take care of my family. Did the show from the home studio, you know, that type of thing. And it was very interesting because uh, a day or two later, when it finally got to me, I woke up Wednesday morning, couldn't do the National Crawford Roundtable. I could barely get my head off the pillow. And I was having a hard, you know, where you get that 
sensation where even just saliva in your mouth, like if you're just swallowing normally, it was just killing me. And and Lisa, my wife, God bless her, is the last person to run to the doctor. You know, she's take over the counter, do what you can. And I was saying, babe, look, if you don't drive me, I'm going to drive myself. And she said, okay, no, I'll take you. I got there. I got sick when I got to the emergency room and they uh, put me in a bed for about six hours and ran some tests. And it turned out I did have pneumonia. They gave me some breathing treatments and they did a test to say, oh, by the way, you have COVID. And so I spent the next week often on the uh, ventilator and taking some medication. And eventually I came back around, but the COVID part, you know, hung around for quite some time. Now, I don't know that it would have been any different from what I've read. I don't know that COVID, uh, that if I'd gotten the vaccination, it would have been any better or worse. I mean, in all honesty, the numbers are coming up pretty much the same, just like the infection rates and the hospitalization rates in the states that had mandates versus states that didn't have mandates. They're about the same. So that nobody wants the UN telling you what to do when it comes to that type of thing, especially in a pandemic that was, uh, many people call it a plandemic, and I have a tendency to agree with them. But they can focus on that, and for some reason, they just don't know what to do with the Fulani herdsmen in Nigeria who are murdering Christians left and right. A Roman Catholic catechist and his wife were among dozens of Christians who were killed in central Nigeria's Benue state. Uh, in, this was in late May. We just found out about it last week. Uh, Dominic Dajo and his wife uh, were at the St. Peter Catholic Church in Herniam Village in Guma County. And uh, there was basically the Fulani herdsmen just massacred these Christians. They attacked um, a, a number of villages, uh, Seme Vama, Seme Ortim, Toro Mayanbiar. Uh, over the next two weeks, they also attacked the Guma villages of Agasha, and, and the list goes on. We'll put the full report up from the Christian Post at thebottomlineshow.com. But it's amazing how many, I mean, thousands of Christians displaced. Um, the herdsmen collaborated with other Muslim terrorists on Tuesday, May the 9th, to kill more than 22 Christians. Um, according to the uh, World Watch list from Open Doors Ministries in 2023, um, Nigeria led the world in having the number of Christians killed for their faith. Uh, there were 5,014 Christians killed for their faith in Nigeria in 2022. There were another 4,700 that were abducted, sexually assaulted, or harassed. Um, in some cases, too, let's not forget, too, the forced marriage of young girls is also very real. Um, Nigeria is moving up so quickly as a place where Christians are being sacrificed, martyred, if you will. And it's equal opportunity. It's the Fulani herdsmen. It's Boko Haram, which never went away. Remember ISIS? Now we have the Islamic State of the West African province. That's ISWAP. And uh, basically they find Christian communities. They usually look for like a Catholic church or something. And then they raid the community. Burn the churches. Terrorize the people. Um, Nigeria was number one in Christians who were killed for their faith and number two in the most church attacks that wound up displacing people. According to the World Watch List in 2023, Nigeria is now sixth place in most difficult place to be a Christian. Um, That's the highest ranking it's ever been. Last year was number seven and it keeps moving up. So we've got a lot of praying to do and lest we get too concerned over issues like rainbow bathing suits and stuff like that, which are also important to speak to. May we not forget our brothers and sisters who are being martyred for their faith right now. 
Lord God, we come before you and we ask for your protection for our brothers and sisters. We mourn the loss of these men and women who uh, paid the ultimate price at the hands of the Fulani herdsmen. We know there are radicalized Muslims who seek to try to eliminate Christianity, and this is part of their religion. We understand that. We also know, Father, that you are moving in the lives of Muslims through dreams, and you're, you're, you're speaking to millions of Muslims and bringing them home to you and to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, we welcome them and gladly we pray that more of them would turn from the violence against Christians and turn toward the freedom that they experience as Christians. We ask all these things in the precious and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we pray will become their Lord and Savior as well. Uh, and all God's people said, amen. You know, it's interesting when I think about Christians in places like Nigeria, the first thing I think of is that's kind of a death sentence, isn't it, to be a Christian there? I mean, I realize there are millions of people who live there and 5,000 Christians died for their faith. But think about the people who are in these Fulani herdsman tribes in Boko Haram. I mean, they're basically sentenced to die um, either in this life or the next, and they're willing to die for their quote-unquote faith. You know, it's amazing how much you can learn from somebody who's in their final days, whether it be an elderly parent, a relative, maybe it's a friend or co-worker, former pastor, whoever that might be. But what about the people who are in society now in prison? They're on death row, literally there. Some of them are there and know that they've done something horrible and they deserve to pay the penalty for their crime. Others might be there and they don't really understand how this got there. Uh, Dewey Williams is a pastor who experienced some tremendous tragedy in his life. And at one point in his life, he felt as though the joy had completely left him. And then he wound up making a sojourn onto death row at a local prison. And he began to meet with the inmates and find out what their experience was like, meet with the family members of those who have been sentenced to die. And in the middle of their heartbreak and sorrow, he noticed that they also experienced peace and joy because they'd found Christ. Dewey's written a book about his experience. It's called Finding Joy on Death Row, Unexpected Lessons from Lives We Discarded. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. I've asked uh, Reverend Dewey Williams to join me on the other side of this break to talk about this. And we'll do that coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Well, today here on The Bottom Line, we're going to get into a topic of conversation I think is important on a lot of different levels. But first and foremost, it's at what point does the value and sanctity of human life uh, really lose its value? And, and why is it that in society, many of us have a tendency to look at some people as quote unquote more valuable than others. Uh, Dewey Williams is with me today here on the program. He's the pastor at Mount Bright Missionary Baptist Church in Hillsboro, North Carolina, currently pursuing his doctorate at Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University. And he's a graduate of Duke Divinity School, but it's a connection to something that he did at Yale's School of Theology that is our topic of conversation today, uh, a brand new book of his called Finding Joy on Death Row, Unexpected Lessons from Lives We Discarded. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Pastor Dewey Williams, welcome to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you, Roger. It's a blessing to be here with you. I'm excited about talking with you. Well, we're, we're excited to have you here, too. And I, I, I was ready to give you credit for getting your MDiv at Yale because my brother's a Princeton guy, but you duly noted that uh, it's Duke Divinity School, which is equally good. But this sermon series came from something at Yale 
that wound up becoming award-winning and life-changing for so many people because of the topic and kind of your position, you know, with regard to where you were, where God had you and, and how this came about. Kind of give us a 90-second overview, if you will, as to how you found Joy on Death Row. Well, I was pursuing joy. I wasn't feeling the joy in my life, and I decided in 2016, everything I'm going to do is going is going to be about joy. Hmm. Everything. And I'm a minister. I, was, I wasn't pastoring at the time, but I was a minister, and I was, if I taught Sunday school or taught a lesson or led a group, it was always about joy. I got invited to be a part of a group that was going to death row and uh, in prison ministry. And I went and I did a uh, talk on forgiveness and the lead chaplain heard me and said, I've got a problem. One of the men that normally preaches on death row can't do it any longer. Are you available? And I wasn't pastoring on Sunday, so I told this chaplain yes. And I uh, started preaching on death row. The problem was everything I was doing is about joy. And I was like, how do I get joy connected with death row? Mm -hmm. But I plowed through and I did it. As I was researching joy, uh, Yale Divinity School was having a campaign called Joy in the Good Life. And they asked preachers to send in sermons, a series of sermons on joy. And I said, well, I'm preaching about joy. It's on death row. I don't know if that's the good life they're talking about, <laughs> but that's where I am, and that's yeah. where I'm preaching. And I submitted these sermons to Yale, and my sermons won top honors at Yale Divinity School wow. uh, about joy on death row. And that's kind of the genesis of getting started with uh, my having joy. It started with an invite to come be a part of a group going, and then an invite to preach on death row. I appreciate, uh, Pastor Dewey Williams, you sharing that you were not experiencing joy in your life at the time the sermon series started and you were preaching, and that you were pursuing it. Uh, Was there any one incident in particular, or maybe it was kind of a lifetime of things that had been building up over a period of years that led you to say, hey, look, I love God, I love preaching His Word, I love sharing the gospel with people, but I'm just not experiencing the joy of the Lord right now. Well, it was a series of things, and it's over the lifetime, and I chronicle this in the book. When I was a young preacher, uh, my sister, in a spell of paranoid schizophrenia, heard mm. voices telling her to kill our father, and oh, she no. did that. And uh, so suddenly, my father, who was a preacher, who was a big inspiration to me, who, who I was trying to—I was trying to do better than my dad in ministry, really, to mm-hmm. be honest. And all of a sudden, he was gone. Uh, And so there was kind of this crippling of my joy uh, because, you know, what I was pursuing was was not there. And and I did not have him as somebody to bounce what I was doing off of. And then later in life, uh, my daughter, my adult daughter, became sick. She started having seizures. And for seven years, we worked trying to figure out how we could stop that. And one night in her sleep, she had a seizure, and she passed away Mm. uh, in bed, sleep. And so there was a great loss for my wife and myself Mm -hmm. and for our family, for our church, for everybody. And uh, I found myself leaving Denver, Colorado, and going to North Carolina, where we had another daughter. 
but I just was not where I wanted to be. I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. I wasn't mm-hmm. feeling the the fresh wind of, of joy blowing in my life. And that's when I decided I'm just going to pursue it. I bought like 20 books on joy. Every time I, I uh, read a scripture, I tried to find something about joy. Every time I was listening to sermons, I was trying to find something about joy. I was just pursuing it. And that's why I was online and found this, this uh, event going on at Yale. And, and so a part of what happened was I was pursuing it. And out of that comes the lesson that if you pursue the good that God has for you, God will show it to you in ways that you, don't, you cannot even imagine what God will show you. But you just have to pursue it and allow God to open up doors for you to, to see what God has for you. Pastor Dewey Williams is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. His book is called Finding Joy on Death Row, Unexpected Lessons from Lives We've Discarded. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. What was it like for you, Dewey, to meet these people, to hear these experiences? And, you know, it is, let's face it, you hear someone who commits capital crime, it's reported in the media somehow, somebody says, oh, yeah, that guy's going to get, you know, life in prison, or or they're going to experience capital punishment for their crime. And then oftentimes, our human brains say, well, I'm overloaded to too many other things in life. I don't know anybody who's been in that situation, so therefore, I can't really relate. What was it like for you? I mean, what what are, what, what are some of the, uh, the, the qualities of people who are in that situation? And how getting that sentence impacted them? Well, for the most part, the groups that I worked with were believers in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Men and women also eventually got to work with the women on death row. But they believe in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And a conversion has taken place in their life. A it's renewal gone. and a regeneration has happened, and there's been a change. And so I think the very principle of the work of God takes place and was revealed to me right from the very first day I went to death row, that the joy of Jesus was present in these men that I met. And they came, I went to them thinking, I'm going to, you know, try to rub off some good on them. And they came into the room bouncing with anticipation of hearing messages and words and wanting to share the joy that they had in their life. So, so you know, it's a miracle God can do this with people that have been told their life is not worth keeping alive. God mm-hmm. moved in them in a way that they have uh, a desire to share what God has given to them and how God has changed them. So it's been, it was very personal, personal for me, because at the moment I was kind of in my funk. When I went, Mm -hmm. I had this professional look about myself, and I had a degree in in, uh, divinity school, and I went there with all this knowledge, Bible knowledge and theological knowledge and background and historical knowledge. I had all of that, but I found joy, not from my education, but from the men on death row. And that's the power of joy. That's the power of God working in our lives if we surrender to God. There are a lot of people, Dewey Williams, who would say, okay, I heard you say that there are people who, you know, are, are you know, they're sitting on death row and they believe that society said, well, you're not worth living anymore because of, and I, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing what you said. 
But there are those who would also argue, well, you did commit a capital offense. And this is, you know, some states have a capital punishment, some states don't. Help us understand the, you know, there's so much joy in these men that you met who were sentenced to death, basically, for the crimes that they'd committed. Uh, Was there, what was the... What was the anticipation like for them? I mean, were they were they hoping for it, it to be, you know, uh, busted down on appeal to life in prison? Were they hoping to get out of prison? I met a couple of death row inmates who were actually uh, sentenced with bad information, you know, and forensic evidence actually got them released. What kind of experience were they having where they would say, okay, you know, I'm here and I've got the joy of the Lord, but kind of seems like society feels I don't have any value? Yeah. Well, it, it varied from man to man, uh, what their anticipations were, what their hopes were. Mm-hmm. Uh, standing out in my memory, one thing I would do every time I would go and uh, preach, I would take prayer requests. Mm-hmm. And one man uh, gave a prayer request saying, I want to pray for the victims, the people's lives that I've hurt. Mm-hmm. Um family members of those that are hurting because of the crimes that I committed, the life that I took. I want to pray for those family members. And so he has, he would really, he was really settled in on, I did this wrong and I am concerned about the victims and their families. The next guy stood up to give his prayer request and his prayer request was, I have an appeal next week. And I am hoping and praying that the appeal comes through and that I get out. And so these were back-to-back prayer requests. Mm. And and that just stood out to me. And it really demonstrated the vast divide of anticipation and hope that rests in these uh, men's lives. And so some of them feel, you know, I, I, I'm not the right person or I didn't get the right sentence. And others are saying, I am sorry, I regret what I did, mm-hmm. and uh, I want to lift up the family members uh, that I've hurt. And so you have, a, you have that cross that goes in, in the midst of them and, and varies probably from, from person to person. But they are a community of believers. The Christians on death row are a community of believers and they are there, and they pray for one another. They lift one another up. They counsel one another. They they cry with one another. They give support to each other the way believers are supposed to give support to one another. Wow. And so they are they are really the church alive in mm-hmm. the midst of a barren place. Well, I'll tell you, boy, if your heart is not stirred by what Pastor Dewey Williams has been sharing so far, we're going to take a break here. You could take 90 seconds to two minutes here and figure that out because, man, this is powerful testimony. Pastor Dewey Williams is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called Finding Joy on Death Row, Unexpected Lessons from Lives We Discarded. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. More of this conversation in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years? 
After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account, Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Dewey Williams is my guest today here on the program. We're talking about his powerful new book called Finding Joy on Death Row, Unexpected Lessons from Lives We've Discarded. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And we are giving away the book this week as part of our Everyone Wednesday giveaway. We have two copies of the book to give away, as a matter of fact. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, the book by pastor and author Dewey Williams is called Finding Joy on Death Row. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line. You know, it's interesting to think about how Dewey Williams had experienced the tragedy that he did. Uh, uh, his sister uh, having a mental episode wound up taking the life of his father. Uh, dad was a pastor. Dewey was, you know, filled with a desire to emulate him and, and wound up, you know, having a lot of questions of God, you know, when the tragedy happens like this, why did you allow my sister to go through this? Why did my dad have to suffer? I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. But it also helps you realize something about the fragility of hum the life and experience as we know it right now, and also the permanence of our souls and how someone with a messed up mind can be redeemed. Somebody who in a moment of weakness or madness committed a capital offense, it doesn't mean we throw their life away. And in experiencing the joy that they felt knowing that they had eternal benefit and value to their lives, even though they had to pay the temporal price, it's amazing to see how this pastor got his smile back as well. Uh, more with pastor and author Dewey Williams coming up next as the bottom line continues. You've been in an accident and the worst thing you can do is to wait to contact Stephanie at Cover Law. Stephanie frequently talks to people who waited too long to seek help with their cases or tried to handle them on their own. And by then, it's too late. Family and friends mean well, but they can give truly bad advice. Often even trusted advisors will try and convince you to wait for more compensation. Stephanie knows the insurance companies want you to wait. They don't want you to file police reports, and they don't want you to reach out to Stephanie at Cover Law. That's because Stephanie is keenly aware of the tactics they use and why. She spent 20 years litigating four insurance companies and knows the strategy they will use to minimize their liability and your awarded amount. Insurance companies are for profit. They don't share Stephanie's Christian values, and typically they won't be fair to you. Don't deny yourself the ability to get better. Go with a proven expert in the field of personal injury and contact Cover Law at kbrightradio.com slash c-o-v-e-r today. Pastor Dewey Williams is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Pastor's been the pastor at Mount Bright Missionary Baptist Church in Hillsboro, North Carolina, for quite some time. He's a doctoral student at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University, ha earned his uh, Master's of Divinity from Duke Divinity School. But it was a sermon series that he presented in the Yale Divinity School of Theology of Joy and the Good Life Competition, 
called Joy on Death Row that really kind of put his whole ministry in a, a different dimension. And it kind of, for you personally, Dewey Williams, I mean, you really discovered that your pursuit of joy was not going to be a fruitless exercise. Uh, the book is fascinating. And there's a question to you as you were describing the community of believers on death row, the church really being the church and men and women who've come to faith in Christ and really do pray for one another, many of whom are asking for forgiveness for and praying for the families of the ones that they had hurt. One of the things that we often don't think about, it's kind of like when a soldier goes to war and comes back and has been impacted by PTSD. Uh, many experts tell us, don't just think it's only them that's wrestling with the PTSD. It's their entire family. It's extended family. It's, it's a pretty large group of people. Um, talk about the family members of those who are incarcerated and what a death row sentence means to them, how it impacts their family. Well, I haven't had a lot of contact with the family members. Um, and I, I, the, the most that I've had is with one man, and this was a man that deeply impacted me. God arranged for him to come to me on the very first day that I went to death row. And we sat down, I did my talk on forgiveness, and we had a break, and we sat down at a table. We were eating some cookies. And the man leaned over to me and said, I have to tell you something. I'm not on death row. I'm on life row. And mm. I'm going to live my life the best way I can. And that shook me because I was kind of in a funk at the moment. And here's right. a man on death row saying, you know, I've got the victory in my life. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it shook me. And then later, years later, I was. I had this scheduled meeting to meet with eight of the men on death row, and he was the only one that showed up. Wow! Out of all the eight, he 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 came, and so we were there. He and I, and we talked for like an hour, maybe close to an hour and a half. And at the end, he was talking about his mother and how he had contact with his mother. His mother came to see him regularly, and I asked him if it was okay if I could make contact with his mother. And I made the drive, it was like an hour and a half drive to go meet with his mother and talk with him. I talked with her and have this meeting to talk about her experience and the sorrow that has hit her and her family and the devastation uh, that that is so powerfully crippled them. And so I got to uh, talk with her, but she's a believer in Jesus Christ, doesn't understand how he did this at the age of 18 years old, mm -hmm. how this you know came upon him. But at such a young age, he was out of control and he lost his, his, uh, his uh, life going on to death row. And lo and behold, his faith and her faith is what has kept them through over 25 years. She wow. goes to see him regularly. She has not given up on her son. She hasn't given up on having some anticipated hope for him. And he treasures the moment of her coming to see him. He says she comes to see him every month unless she's sick and cannot make it. <laughs> and, you know, what a blessing that is. And so that's, that's the one relative that I've had contact with. And I chronicled that event in the book also, talking about that time with her, because he was pivotal. He was the first one that I had a conversation with, and then we had that long conversation together. And his mother is a, a sweet, 
uh, lady. She loves the Lord. She trusts the Lord. And, you know, bad things happened. And he went the wrong way when he was 18 years old, and he's paying a price. But, like he said, I'm on life road. He's determined mm-hmm. to live his life for Jesus Christ. I think that's phenomenal. Pastor Dewey Williams, my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called Finding Joy on Death Row, Unexpected Lessons from Lives We Discarded. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And of course, in the book, you'll find the uh, the actual sermon uh, series as it was presented and, and some of the interaction uh, responses to the pastor from the prisoners as well. Um, take our, We've got about two and a half minutes left in our time together, Dewey, and I would love for you to kind of help us understand where you are now. You mentioned earlier in the conversation um, that your dad, who was a pastor and was your hero, you know, you were, what son doesn't want to outdo dad, you know, in in such a way that you're still honoring your father's legacy, but you you can say, look, dad, I'm standing on your shoulders. And that unfortunate situation with your sister. uh, What was the outcome of that? What was the shakedown in terms of how your family being impacted by such a huge blow? What was the recovery? What was the healing for you guys now? Well, it was a devastating blow to our family. It, um, my brothers and sisters, subsequently, and my mother also, all scattered across the country. Hmm. Denver was our base and our home, but within two or three years, everybody was gone from Denver, except for my sister that that uh, killed our dad, and she was in the state hospital mm-hmm. uh, for her mental health problems. And so this spreading across the country happened, and we were just separated. We were separated with our emotions, and we were also separated geographically. Hmm. And not a one of us went to counseling. Not not one of us went wow. to mental health counseling or got any help. We were just, you know, being strong Christian soldiers. Yep. And and that I think that was a mistake. We all probably needed to be in somebody's counselor's office. But we you know, God has miraculously over the last 10 to 12 years started bringing us back together. And we're having a family reunion here in, at my home uh, in July this year. Oh, that's fantastic. So God is healing. Yeah. yeah. God is doing healing. And this will not be our first one since then, but this is something we've been picking up on the last few years, trying to get together, trying to have some repair. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, we all are believers, and, and so we. I trust God. I do have one brother who has always been distanced from the church his whole adult life, mm. and because of COVID, uh, he started tuning in online to our our uh, online worship, and he is present in worship every Sunday. Wow! Since COVID started, and so you can see God working and God's hand in the middle of our family and our lives, yes. and I just rejoice that God. You know, our, our father was taken, but God did not give up on us. And God has power to restore us and keep us and drive us and bring us and pull us and do all the things that we need. God, God is in charge. And, and joy is God's work. And if we will surrender to that, God will continue to make the joy happen. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love how you've shared your journey, how your journey led you to a place that you, the, the last place on earth anybody would expect to find joy. And yet not only did you find it, but it has kind of revitalized your ministry and 
put it in a whole new direction. Pastor Dewey Williams, the book is called Finding Joy on Death Row, Unexpected Lessons from Lives We Discarded. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dewey, uh, great to get to meet you, sir. Thank you for your work here and your time today here on The Bottom Line Show. Really appreciate it. God bless you, Roger, and God bless the work that you do. What a fascinating conversation. Pastor and author Dewey Williams has been my guest today here on The Bottom Line. It's Everyone Wednesday, and we have a couple copies. I'm glad. I wish we had more. Uh, it, as a matter of fact, let me, let's do this. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line. Uh, Dewey Williams preached a sermon series that actually was submitted to Yale Divinity School and he got top honors for the sermon series about how he and his brokenness went to death row, met with the prisoners, met with the families, got the kind of encouragement that he needed. And because, I mean, basically he was there to minister to them and they wound up ministering to him. I mentioned we have two copies of this book to give away at 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line. Um, I want to also uh, say, though, that since we have these two copies, but it is Everyone Wednesday, if we have more than two callers to win this book, we're going to put in a word to the publisher and see if we can get more. So, Crystal, go ahead and uh, give away as many copies of this book as we can get winners for, because I think it's that important. 800-227. Now, watch, we get 25 calls. Well, that's, I mean, we'll figure it out. Everybody's going to win something. Even if you don't get this book, we've got uh, David Jeremiah devotionals. We've got Charles Stanley memorial calendars. We've got uh, things from uh, uh, Dr. Jeremy McGarity at Skyline Church to give away lots of freebies for you. And we've got books coming out of our ears. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. We'll take a quick break. And as we continue, good news uh, for a family that actually had the courage to speak up when one of their kids was actually put in an awkward situation with someone who identified as LGBTQ. Now, it's, this is not a we hate people in that community crowd. But it's a, okay, if we're going to let that door swing one way to try to accommodate some people, don't other people who have their uh, health and safety put at risk have the right to also speak up as well. We'll tell you this fascinating story with a positive outcome coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. My thanks again to Dewey Williams, pastor and author of the fascinating new book called Finding Joy on Death Row. Unexpected Lessons from Lives We've Discarded. It's our uh, Everyone Wednesday giveaway today here on The Bottom Line. 800-227-5278. The number to get you through to The Bottom Line. We have two copies for sure here at the studio to give away. But if we get more people calling in and they want the book, we're going to go back to the publisher and ask them for more. So don't let that discourage you. The fact that we only have two copies of if uh, you're calling number five, six, or seven, or whatever, then um, you're going to be in line to get one. Um, a, a good news story out of Vermont, where a public school teacher actually was reprimanded for um, uh, speaking out against a transgender female using the locker room of a public school. Um, this is a, I mean... It's one of those things when when most people with common sense, statistically, here's what you get. You know, it, it's 2% of the population is LGBTQIA2S or whatever the new plus. 
um, is. Uh, they tried to track this with the Census Bureau back in 2010, first time they'd ever asked the question. And we'd heard the 10% story about, you know, 10% of the population's gay. And the number of people who identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender came in at around 2.8%. So for the 2020 census, they also asked the same question. The number had fallen to 2%, though the population had arisen. So, um, you know, more people, but a smaller percentage. And so they just kind of dropped that question. No one wants to ask it. Instead, it's become an individual case-by-case -case thing. Now, understand that a lot of school districts that have been hammered by this, this goes back to the Obama administration when they tried to push the envelope on the LGBTQ community. While they were trying to get Obergefell passed, they also started pushing the transgender issue. Obergefell was the decision. It involved a couple of women who lived in a state, I think Massachusetts, that recognized same-sex quote-unquote marriage. And one of the women had worked for the federal government. The other one did not. Uh, when the one who had worked for the government passed away, uh, the Obergefell uh, estate basically said that the surviving quote-unquote spouse should be entitled to the federal benefits, and um, the court ruled against them, and then they went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, because Anthony Kennedy kind of invented a rule for same-sex marriage, he was the swing vote back then, five to four, Obergefell passed. But at the same time that was going on, President Obama started introducing language into the vernacular that basically said, look, if you are a public, you've wondered why did this bathroom issue and locker room issue become such a big deal? It's because his administration started attaching it to school lunch funding. It wasn't a law per se. They weren't even executive orders. They were in the guidelines for who could receive full amounts of school lunch programs. And they included making sure that students who identified as transgender could use the restroom and the locker room of the gender to which they identified. Now, understanding, of course, that this is just the kid saying so. A boy decides he wants to wear a dress to school, grow his hair out, wear makeup and say, I'm a girl, let me use the girl's locker room. Now, I was part of the parental group at that point that said, you know what's going to happen? Boys are going to say, I'm a girl and go in there and sexually assault young women and be like, ah, you're crazy. And then we had that kid in Virginia who did it at two different schools. He literally dressed like a boy, from what I understand, put a skirt on over his jeans and said, I'm a girl and went in there and sexually assaulted his ex-girlfriend. Well, that would never happen. Yeah. Well, the suicide, well, wait a minute. You can look at the, st the statistic, and it is true that 80% of kids who identify as transgender have thought about suicide prior to doing any kind of hormone replacement or whatever. But find out what the number is after they've had the surgery, and you'll discover that it's just as high. And they're more likely to go through with it after they've had, quote-unquote, gender-affirming care. So this is wrong on so many different levels. Back in 2022, a girls' locker room, this is the uh, uh, Randolph Union High School, a biological male attempted to use the girls' locker room. Now, what happened was, quite frankly, according to uh, Blake and Travis Allen, Travis Allen, middle school soccer coach, daughter Blake Allen was suspended from school because they both spoke out against this boy who was using the girls' locker room. Basically, Blake and some of her friends were in the locker room 
they were in various states of undress. A boy, biological male, who identifies as transgender, entered into the locker room. Uh, Blake was there, the soccer team that she was a part of, or I guess she's a volleyball team. Dad's the soccer coach. Uh, she said, basically, when some of the volleyball girls were trying to get changed, a boy, a man, walked in, a male, walked into our locker room. I asked him to leave. He didn't. He later looked over at the girls with their shirts off, made many of the girls uncomfortable, and they felt violated. I left as soon as I can, Blake said, because I was in a panic. She said, now please understand, I don't blame him for coming into the locker room and wanting to change. But quite frankly, um, in the conversation that she had with a friend in their French class afterwards, she said, this girl walks in who was literally a dude and he does not belong in the girl's locker room. So basically... (laughs) Blake Allen was rewarded with a two-day out-of-school suspension and required her to submit to taking part in what they call a restorative circle with the school's equity coordinator to avoid additional punishment. This is a girl who was with the volleyball team at her high school and complained to another student, fellow student, that a transgender student who was literally still a guy just identifying as a girl, and guess who gets punished? Now, Coach Tra- uh, Travis Allen was reportedly suspended without pay from his job as the middle school girls' soccer coach because he misgendered this trans student on Facebook by referring to the 14-year-old biological male as a male. <laughs> uh, Travis Allen responded on Facebook to a woman who said she was the mother of the transgender student And he said, quote, the truth is your son watched my daughter and multiple other girls change in the locker room. While he got a free show, they were violated. A week after the locker room incident, the transgender student apparently said, I'm going to effing kill Blake Allen. The Vermont School Board's Insurance Trust made a decision concerning a payment in order to cap defense expenses in what would have otherwise been years of litigation. So, um, in other words, the school district caved. The school district decided that they would, in fact, uh, pay the family a $125,000 settlement for legal fees. But according to Travis Allen, he said, this is a huge victory for freedom of speech, not just for my daughter Blake and me, but for anyone who wants to voice their opinion about important topics. So is this fair? Is this right? Is this the way these things should be handled? Let's take a quick break and when we come back, I'm going to talk about what the Alliance Defending Freedom had to say about this because Phil Seckler, who's senior counsel for ADF, was the one representing the Allen family in this case. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. One of the greatest gifts that we can give to an expectant mother is the gift of the first picture she'll ever have of her son or daughter in the womb. That comes through an ultrasound, and our friends at Preborn have an opportunity for us to make more of these ultrasounds a reality. Every time you give a donation of $28 to Preborn, that means one more ultrasound can take place. But how about giving enough money for an ultrasound machine? The cost is $15,000. It's a sizable investment. But every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year, 
and lasts at least 10 years. Now take that cost $15,000 and divide that by 2,500. Okay, now you begin to see how the cost per ultrasound goes down even more once we have more ultrasound machines to donate into preborn clinics. Make a donation right now to preborn. It's completely tax deductible, and every penny, every dollar you donate right now is going to the purchase of an ultrasound machine. 833-850-BABY is the number to call. 833-850-2229 or go to kbrightradio.com. That's K-B-R-I-T-E radio.com. Click on the banner for Preborn and make your best donation right now. $25, $50, $100, it all counts towards saving babies' lives. KBrightRadio.com. Hit the Preborn banner right now. Welcome back to this Everyone Wednesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Still taking your calls for Dewey Williams' outstanding book called Finding Joy on Death Row, Unexpected Lessons from Lives We Discarded. There's a link up at thebottomlineshow.com. We have a minimum of two copies of this book to give away, and we're doing so right now. Crystal's taking your calls. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. A victory from our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom for Blake Allen, a 14-year-old girl who was suspended from school and her father, Travis Allen, lost his coaching position as a middle school soccer coach in the same school district. Uh, the district uh, is now going to pay their family and their attorneys $125,000. Uh, their records will be cleared of any sort of references to disciplinary action. Travis Allen will be reinstated, and Blake Allen, his daughter, will now not have to go to a quote-unquote restorative circle where she would basically have to go through, uh, you know, re-education, if you will, for uh, misgendering a trans student. You know who loses? I mean, nobody wins in a case like this, but you, free speech wins. But the families had to go through it. And that's no fun. You know who really loses out? I mean, obviously the Allen family, Travis Allen lost his coaching job. He got that back. Uh, Blake Allen and her friends lost a little bit of their innocence, not to say that 14-year-old girls are completely innocent, but there were girls that, I mean, it's one thing if the girls are exposed to it in the culture, where it's on TV, it's on the internet and everything, and they see naked bodies or people engaged in sexual activity, they're a little desensitized to it, but then it becomes very real when they're topless and covering up their chests, and this boy walks in and says, I'm a girl too, let me use the girls' locker room. The district misses it completely because they're not treating this gender dysphoria in a way that's best for everyone. Forcing, everyone has to, just because this boy identifies this way and his parents apparently support him. But I also feel badly for the boy. He's experiencing gender dysphoria at a very critical time in his life. He's so confused that he thinks he's a girl. His parents are supporting him. The culture keeps telling him he's right. No one's telling him the truth about what's really going on inside his body. And I don't know what kind of trauma that he experienced that led him to this point. But my prayer is that he will eventually find healing for it. I, I think that should be the prayer of all of us, quite frankly. I mean, it's really easy for us to get militant and say, oh, that's transgender, blah, blah, blippity, blah. And I don't, I don't like it. Well, trust me, I don't like it either. God doesn't like it. God does not like sin. God is a holy God. He will not stand in the presence of sin. That's why we have our faith in Jesus Christ to give us access. The blood of Christ washes away our sin from our record. So Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus and not our sin. But then also there's a payment that's due for our sin. 
people talk about the evils of capitalism. Well, I'm all against corporate greed, but you got to understand capitalism is God's plan A here. I mean, you sin, you owe, right? You know, you break, you buy. And uh, that's just, that's where we are with this. And God will not be mocked if you don't have the blood of Jesus Christ, not only wiping your slate clean, but paying your debt, then you will spend eternity in torment paying off that debt. A little bit of pleasure is certainly not worth an eternity in torment. But here's this young man and he's confused and the people around him are giving him bad advice. And so he walks in now and unwittingly uh, is exposed to these topless girls in the locker room. And what does that say to him? He's got to look at that and say, wait, I am not that. That's the wake up call for me. I am not that. Lord, I pray for this young man and I pray that you would bring him back to wholeness and repentance and restorative justice for what the culture is telling him is right and true. It's not. It's a lie that they're telling him. But you are the way, the truth, and the life. Please help restore him to wholeness and help his family to uh, find that kind of counsel as well. And thank you for uh, the Allen family for taking a courageous stand. Thank you for our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom for helping them in that quest. And may we lovingly stand up for what's right. Put on the full armor that you've given us in Ephesians chapter 6. But to remember, once we've withstood all the fiery arrows of the enemy, to know too that we can stand firm in our faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last call for the Dewey Williams book, Finding Joy on Death Row, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 on this Everyone Wednesday. Everyone's getting a copy of that book. KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your Everyone Wednesday. Uh, you'll hear my uh, analysis, balance, and clarity on the American flag coming up tonight at 7 on the uh, Bottom Line Show Extra. For those who remain on the network, you get to hear it live. <laughs> Some interesting thoughts as we commemorate June 14th, which is Flag Day here in the U.S. That's coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome to another Wednesday edition of The Bottom Line Show. Everyone Wednesday, and of course, everyone's been calling in today to get all the freebies that were given away. You know, we should have gotten American flags. That would have been fun to give away here on Flag Day. Uh, everyone's been calling in for Pastor Dewey Williams' book, Finding Joy on Death Row. Fascinating letters from death row inmates and from... Uh, also their families, people who have been impacted by those who wound up on death row, and to hear the stories of redemption and forgiveness, it's just so um, just remarkable to hear. And, and a pastor who was literally just kind of down to the end of the wire for his own faith found this joy by reaching out to and ministering to these people. And I just, it's such an encouraging story. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. Um, when we think about today, June the 14th, uh, we understand that today is recognized as Flag Day here in the United States. Flag Day is very interesting because a lot of people love our flag, and we're coming up on two major holidays that celebrate the two foundational moments for the United States of America. I'll do them in reverse order because one of them happened later than the other um, in terms of calendar days on july 4th 1776 of course that's the day that the u.s signed the u.s delegation signed the declaration of independence which was drafted on july 2nd and uh an original uh, version of it actually was a lot more uh 
of what we would want the U.S. to be than the July 4th version, which wasn't half bad either. And that's where we declared our independence from the United Kingdom, from England, and the British crown. And 11 years later, the U.S. Constitution was drafted and signed, and the U.S. Constitution kind of lived up to what we signed on July 4th. But uh, today is the day that we celebrate the flag. And I want to just go, on th- go, go through a little rough history, a 35,000-foot overview of the American flag, uh, why this day in 1776 isn't necessarily the day that we recognize. And then also some things that happen with the American flag by very patriotic, loving Americans in this culture that are actually illegal. <laughs> They're really wrong. And every year I go through a couple of these and I get notes of people saying, hey, I didn't know that. But guess what? I mean, whether you knew it or not, uh, now you know. So let's get into the history. Uh, what was the American flag before 1776? A lot of people ask this question. Uh, Colonel William Moultrie commissioned something that is known as the Moultrie flag. Uh, this was back in 1775. It's a white crescent moon with the word liberty inscribed in a field of navy blue. It was flown during the Battle of Sullivan's Island in June of 1776, and the Americans were victorious there. So when did the flag actually show up? You know, we've heard the Betsy Ross story. Uh, where, where are we now? How many times has it been modified? How many times has it been changed? When we look at the American flag today, Old Glory, the old nickname, we see red and white stripes with a blue uh, field up in the upper left-hand corner with stars. And of course, you know by now that every star represents uh, one of the uh, states in the Union. So when we were first colonized and became the United States of America, there were 13 colonies, so there were 13 stars in a circle. Um, right now on the flag, most people are familiar with the fact that there are 13 stripes, there are seven red and six white, and they represent the 13 British colonies that declared independence from Great Britain and thus became the first uh, states in the U.S. The uh, blue rectangle um, on the upper left-hand corner that I mentioned earlier is referred to as the Union. And uh, so basically you've got red stripe on the top, then white, then red, then white, all the way down to the bottom red. And then on the left-hand side, you've got the, the blue. Now, the current design for the U.S. flag that we currently use actually is not the first or second. It's the 27th edition of the flag. Uh, The one that was in effect for the longest time was the 48-star flag. Um, That one actually was in effect for 47 years until the 49-star version became official on the 4th of July, 1959. And then on August 21st, 1959, President Eisenhower... Uh, ordered a 50-star flag to be made because Alaska and Hawaii had been in. Um, that was adopted in July of 1960, and it is the now the longest-running uh, American flag that we've ever used. Now, the American flag mimics the Grand Union flag, uh, the Continental Colors flag, and the flag of the British East India. Um, the Stars and Stripes part with the blue had the the Grand Union flag, the continental one, had a red, white, and blue battlefield, if you will, a union as it's called. Uh, and it's got what looks like the Union Jack in red and white within a blue background. The American side of that is just solid blue then with stars. Um, this was the, the idea that the 
U.S. made theirs to look kind of like the English one was uh, largely based over the fact that they were battling the English <laughs> to do, uh, you know, their own independent uh, working. The Continental Congress would not legally adopt star flags with stars, white, blue field for another year. I mean, it was uh, even though the Declaration of Independence was July 4th, 1776, the Continental Navy raised the colors um, basically uh, in 1777. It was by June 14th, 1777, that the Second Continental Congress passed what was called the Flag Resolution, which stated, resolved that the flag of the 13 United States be 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the Union be 13 stars, white in a blue field, representing a new constellation. There you go. So you have ever wondered why that blue background there and then the stars in the sky is to basically say, we are a new, uh, we're a new country. And so basically one of the first resolutions of the Second Continental Congress was to establish a flag and they did so on June 14th and then Flag Day is celebrated. So June 14th, 1777, that's when the Continental Army at the Middlebrook encampment for, first raised that flag. Now, um, interesting um, because the stripes uh, and the stars, basically berries and mullets respectively, have precedence in classical heraldry Mullets were comparatively rare in early modern heraldry. Uh, an example of them uh, representing uh, what predating the U.S. flag is the Valet of 1618 Coat of Arms. Seven mullets stood for seven districts. And uh, the list goes on from there. It's interesting because the American flag was designed primarily to be a military uh, naval flag. That's where you flew your flags primarily. The idea that um, the flag with the stars, as opposed to the stripes, there's a guy called Francis Hopkinson who did a, uh, a version of the stars and stripes. Initially, it had the white stripe on the top and bottom and then the red in the middle and then uh, came up with one for the, uh, uh, with the one that we use today, the red over white. So by the 10th of May, 1779, um, there was a letter from to the war board or from the war board to George Washington that said, hey, look, we have a question about the stars. Um, right now, they have a debate as to whether or not the stars should go in a certain row, if they should be in diagonal rows. Uh, what about a circle? Well, the 13 star circle version is the one that is called the Betsy Ross variant. She being the one who came up with an idea that it would be 13 that way. And of course, that has changed since then. Um, the first King's Colors, if you were, December 3rd of 1775 through Flag Day, June 14, 1777. And then the different, they just kept changing the background of the constellation. Every time a state came in, they went from the rows and the diagonals and the rows straight up and down. There was a box in one at one point, the Betsy Ross is the round, then there was a round in one and all those things. By the time May 1st, 1795 rolled around, Vermont and Kentucky showed up and then it looked like uh, they were just kind of making the stars a little bit further apart. Now, the flags stayed, every time a state was added, they would add another set of stars. Kind of cool in uh, 1847 and 1888, when Iowa was added, they went to this really cool, like three up and down on both left and right, and then this kind of diamond type shape. It's, it's really neat. 
By the time California moved in, the whole middle of the constellation was kind of puffed out and they may have been providential. And then um, by the time Kansas, West Virginia showed up, um, there was a version of the flag in 1865 that had two circles and a couple of stars on the outside and then one circle that was all bolted up. Uh, it wasn't until we got to uh, 1890 that the flag took on the look that it basically has today. They stopped doing the circles because they just couldn't fit them in there. But there's 27 different versions of the flag. And Flag Day is celebrated on June the 14th every year because it was June the 14th, 1777, when the Second Continental Congress determined that uh, this was the flag design we were going to go with. Now, there have been 26 different variants on that. But what about respect for the flag? There'll be a lot of people who are saying, hey, you know what? I mean, it's Flag Day and we're going we're gonna to do fun things with the flag. We want the flag to be always raised and whatever. And we're going to wear flags on T-shirts and we've got kerchiefs and we've got uh, uh, patches on our jeans and we've got flags that are, you know, like our motorcycle uh, has the, on my helmet or on the gas tank. I want flags everywhere. I want a flag hanging down off the side of my uh, uh, building. And my, is that, that's right, right? That shows that I'm a patriotic American. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, as we continue, our friends at the Cornell Law School put this together a couple of years ago, and every year on Flag Day, I like to revisit it. It's Article 4, uh, Section 8 of the U.S. Code for Respect for the Flag. And I'm going to read it. And you are going to hear something in there that you'll say, yeah, that makes sense. And other things you're going to say, really? I didn't know that. So get ready to be surprised about what you do and don't know about the U.S. flag coming up next as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Everyone Wednesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We're rounding out the show uh, with you getting a chance to win, as it were, <laughs> Not flags. We don't have flags to give away, though we do have uh, Right chip clips and uh, uh, goodie bags and things like that. If you want to win something today, it's Everyone Wednesday. Give Crystal a call. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Now, today being Flag Day, you're going to see a lot of patriotic things happening over the next month. Actually, the next three weeks in particular. Of course, today is Flag Day. Next Monday, June the 19th, is Juneteenth Day. That's the day that we commemorate on June 19th, 1865, that uh, re historically recognized as the day that the final slaves in the U.S. heard that they had been freed. In the African-American community, this is a day of great celebration 
because the Emancipation Proclamation was actually uh, written in 1862. It was delivered January 1st, 1863. And it took two and a half years for all of the slaves to be notified. And now the internet, you just do an alert and everybody knows in five minutes. But back then, it was when the last group of slaves in Texas, which is where Juneteenth has been uh, traditionally celebrated the most, um, the Juneteenth celebration honoring the fact that that was the day the slaves, the final slaves were informed that they were in fact free. Uh, there are some people who refer to Juneteenth as the Black Independence Day, and some people get a little nervous when you hear that. But when you consider that 20% of the population on Independence Day were in slavery, and 11 years later, when the U.S. Constitution was signed and the Bill of Rights and all those things, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and we still had 20% of the population that didn't have any of that, uh, what else are you to make of it? Not every black person was a slave on June 19, 1865. There were many freed slaves and many of them owned slaves. But the reality is slavery met its ultimate demise on that day. And I think it's a nice, uh, a nice way for us to kick off the summer celebration of American independence. I only wish, and maybe this is God's way of doing it, I would love to be able to say, hey, on June 18th, we celebrate American Independence Day, and on June 19th, we celebrate the end of slavery. But it doesn't work like that, because American Independence was declared from Britain on July 4th, 1776. So good Americans, I think, should be able to celebrate both days. American Independence Day is important, but if your black friends don't really get all that excited about anything other than eating a lot of food and celebrating fireworks, please understand why. And if you're in the African-American community and your white friends go, wait, what is June, Juneteenth? I don't get it. Have a little patience and explain the story because there's a good chance that the reason why they're not big fans of celebrating is no one ever told them. Trust me, late in life convert here. Now let me blow your mind, regardless of which day you prefer of those two, with a little bit of history with regard to the American flag. Because this is the time of year where you see American flags everywhere. And some of the places you're seeing them, from what I read from Cornell Law School, you're not supposed to be seeing them. For example, most people know that the flag should never be displayed with the Union down. The Union is the blue part where the, you know, it's blue Union with the white stars. It should never be displayed with the Union down. The only time it should is in a signal of dire distress. That's when you're in extreme danger. If you are near any government building and you see the flag flying upside down, that means someone has taken over and these people are in trouble. Okay, that makes sense. Second, the flag should never touch anything beneath it. It should not touch the ground. It should not touch the floor. It should not touch water. We're all okay with that. What if it touches something else that's on the ground? Like maybe you've got a box that's on top of the ground and the box has more flags in it, I don't know, and you're walking along and the flag gets so low that it touches the box on the ground. Well, that flag is supposed to be destroyed. Now, I didn't know the, the merchandise part. I knew that anything beneath it, like if it touched the ground, that flag's no good. Um, you'd see this a lot like in funerals too, where they're trying to drape the flag over the coffin, they're trying to fold it and maybe it slips and it touches the ground and the, <gasps> there's a gasp of air. Okay, so... Anytime the flag touches anything beneath it, ground, floor, water, merchandise, etc., that flag should be destroyed. Third, the flag should never be carried flat or horizontally, 
always aloft and free. Now, this is going to be a problem for some people. I know there is an exception that will be made. No one's ever going to come to a funeral where they have a casket and it's a military funeral and the guys who brought did the military funeral are going to basically, uh, you know, they, they fold the flag. And so the flag might accidentally touch the casket. If they're good soldiers, it won't. But they do that flat, it's horizontally. And you're doing that for the purpose of folding the flag. That's okay. But in terms of displaying the flag, displaying it horizontally, that is a no-no according to Yale Law School. Now, you're going to say, okay, well, so what? How many times have you seen an athletic event? You may go to a baseball game on the 4th of July, and what are they going to do at the start of the game? Yes, there will be flags flying from flagpoles. There will be flags that look like bunting that are hanging down, though, according to Section uh, uh, 2 here of this uh, Cornell Law School paperwork. Um, it should never be hanging down to where an American flag would be touching the side of a railing or something because that's beneath it. But the flag should never be carried flat or horizontally, always aloft and free. You've seen those things. It's opening day. It's the 4th of July. It's the World Series, whatever it is. And they get 100 or so volunteers to all grab a corner of a big old flag and they pull it out flat and horizontally so it covers the field. That's actually against the law. <laughs> Had no idea. Um, it's against the law according to the Legal Information Institute at Cornell Law School. Another thing, too, this is kind of weird. I didn't realize this because I've been part of churches before that had flags that were flown inside um, the church sanctuary or in a church school or on a flagpole out in front of the church. But the flag should never be fastened, displayed, used, or stored in such a manner as to permit it to be easily torn, soiled, damaged in any way now notice if it's stored in a certain way you got to fold that thing up and put it in a hermetically sealed container must do that um, it shouldn't be displayed in a way that it could be torn or soiled it shouldn't be fashioned or whatever when you see flags I, I ran into this in my early pastor days we had uh, flagpoles at our church that were dedicated there was a memorial gift from a guy who had been a veteran his family gave money to put three flagpoles out in front of the church and a little memorial acknowledging the war veterans and whatever and there was room for an American flag in the center California flag on one side Christian flag on the other and they were out there for maybe a month <laughs> up there all day all night never took taken down and within a month they were worn and tattered and weary and that's when we called a couple other places and they said well you know why you didn't spend very much on these flags because you're supposed to take them down every night and fold them up and put them away. You're not supposed to just leave them hanging out there. So if you see a place that is leaving a flag up all the time, it better be on a pole and it better be industrial strength because the flag should never be fashioned, displayed, used, or stored in such a manner to permit it to be easily torn, soiled, or damaged in any way. Now there's another part about flag use that is really going to mess some people up, especially when you go shopping for clothing for 4th of July celebrations. I'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You know, I'll never forget the moment I met my grandson, Isaac. It actually wasn't in the delivery room. That was the first time I held him. But 
The first time I actually met Isaac was when I went with his mother to her ultrasound appointment, and the ultrasound technician showed us a picture of that eight-week-old baby in the womb. Uh, you know, I encourage you to contact Preborn right now and make a donation to provide that same experience for another family. Maybe there's someone in your family who's expecting a child right now. They've had the ultrasound. You've seen the picture. You've heard the heartbeat, and you think, wow, how can I bless someone else? Studies show that 83% of the women who go to a preborn clinic and see that ultrasound either choose to become mothers and raise the children on their own or release the child for adoption. It cuts the risk of, it cuts the rate of abortion dramatically. But your donations are necessary right now to get more ultrasound machines into preborn health clinics. Give a gift online when you go to kbrightradio.com and click the banner that says preborn. Cute little baby there wrapped up in a blanket. Or give a gift over the phone. 833-850-BABY, 833-850-BABY, that's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn, make a donation. Every ultrasound machine could do 250 ultrasounds per year, so give a gift right now. Welcome back to this Everyone Wednesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. It's Flag Day here in the United States. On June the 14th, 1777, the Second Continental Congress moved from a uh, war flag that they had made up in 1775 to represent the uh, struggle of the uh, of the colonies against the crown and it had red and white stripes and then it had that spot where it's called the uh, constitute or the union rather and it was red white and blue looked like a union jack like oh we'll fight you well once we declared our independence the idea was to go with what they call a, a blue union which is the blue backdrop in the backdrop in the upper left hand corner and then the stars were designed to be in that, uh, they were circular initially, to form a new constellation, basically saying we're a new nation. Over time, of course, as more states were added, the circle didn't work. They tried two circles and a big ball, and they had all sorts of different arrangements. By the time we hit our 49th and 50th states, we had the current configuration that we use today. And a flag should never be displayed with the Union down. This is from our friends at uh, Cornell Law School and their Legal Information Institute. People know a flag should never be displayed union down unless it's a distress signal. should never be carried flat or horizontally, but always aloft and free. Uh, it should never touch anything beneath it. It should not be fastened to anything that would put it in a position where it could be easily torn. It should also not be used as a covering for a ceiling. Didn't know that. Uh, it should never be used as a receptacle for receiving, holding, or carrying anything. But check this out. It should never be part of a costume or athletic uniform, though a flag patch may be affixed to the uniform of military personnel, firefighters, police officers, and members of patriotic organizations. The flag, when it is in, no longer fit for display, should be destroyed in a dignified way, preferably burning. We all know that. Uh, the flag should never be used for advertising purposes. <laughs> That's going to put a few companies out of business. Hey, Budweiser, yeah, your logo. No, it's not going to work. Um, it should also not be embroidered on articles like cushions, handkerchiefs. It should not be impressed on paper napkins, boxes, anything designed for temporary use. Advertising signs not to be fastened to a staff, which the flag has flown. The flag also should not be used as wearing apparel. It should not be used as bedding. It should not be used as a drapery. It is not to be festooned, drawn back or up or in folds, but always allowed to fall free. Bunting 
Always arranged with the blue on top, the white in the middle, and the red below. Can be used for covering a speaker's desk, draping the front of a platform, or for decoration in general, but never an American flag. So as you are celebrating your Independence Day and Juneteenth and all of the types of things that you're celebrating over the next three or four weeks, please remember, if the advertising has the flag in it, technically it's against the law. Now, is that law of enforced? No. I mean, people are going to buy 4th of July t-shirts and beach towels and sun visors and umbrellas and uh, coolers and beverage containers and all of that. But I do appreciate the care and concern that goes into the flag and also people who will show respect for it. I think the flag tells a story. If you go, we'll put this uh, Wikipedia page up at thebottomlineshow.com. It takes you on a pictorial history of all 27 iterations of the American flag. And as you look at the years that they were used and the arrangements that they were used, you can also tell the American story. Tell the American story from the Revolutionary War time up through the Declaration of Independence, up to the signing of the Constitution. Then look at the end of the Civil War. Look at Juneteenth. Look at the Civil Rights Movement. Look at the way the flag has changed. We've been using the same flag since July of 1960. And it doesn't look like it's going to change any bit. But I wonder how many people actually know and appreciate the history of the country that this flag represents. Long may it wave. Warts and all. Bruises bandages there's a protocol for how the flag is to be properly displayed and maybe the more we understand that the more we'll show some respect for a nation that has the potential to be the greatest experiment in life liberty and the pursuit of happiness but may wind up being the babylon that leads to the end of the world and the beginning of destruction but also the lord's return here on earth either way it's a win for us in the body of christ that is good news and that's the bottom line